Hi, this is Tom Field, Senior Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. I'm speaking again about coronavirus, and I'm speaking again with Regina Phelps, the founder of Emergency Management and Safety Solutions. Regina, thank you so much for speaking to me again so soon after our last conversation. Tom, it is always a delight, and there's so much going on, we have lots to talk about. Oh, it's a moving target. It's been two weeks since we last spoke. Uh, by my account, infections have jumped to 90,000 worldwide, fatalities to more than 3,100, and the virus is reported now in 70-plus countries. Have I got the numbers right? Yeah, you're pretty close. What do they mean to you? What do they say to you? Well, I think there's a couple things I would say. First of all, this is a very successful virus. You know, there's some viruses that are not so successful in replicating and moving about. So it's able to maintain sustained transmission. And one of the ways it's doing that, first of all, is it's not a terribly lethal. You know, Ebola kills 80% of the people that get it. So, you know, the disease doesn't get very far because it, it, people die off too quickly. It kills off the host. So this spreads easily. A lot of people that are actually infectious are asymptomatic. So that means that it's able to spread much more quickly in a community. And so it tells me that we are in for um, a long time. And I, I think what we'll see over time is that this will spread everywhere throughout the world, primarily for really one big reason. It's a brand new disease, a virus that has never existed before. And that means every single one of us is susceptible. And that means that every one of us have a really good chance of catching it sometime during this next 12 months. Regina, how close are we to this being considered a pandemic? And I guess my follow-up would be, why does that matter? That's a really good question. So the WHO, again, has declined to declare a pandemic. I think that was actually uh, today at some point. And um, I guess I have two things to really say about that. First of all, the classic definition of a pandemic is an outbreak of a disease that occurs over a wide geographical area and affects a large proportion of the population, which means that we have sustained transmission. Now, if the WHO declares a pandemic, what does that mean? Well, the WHO doesn't have any authority to actually mandate what happens. That actually tells governments that if they haven't started to do something, they need to get on it. And secondarily, that may push many governments to uh, uh, restrict more activities, perhaps. But in the big scheme of things, does it mean a lot if the WHO declares a pandemic? And the answer is no. Given everything we've seen in the past couple of weeks, what are the trends that matter the most to you? That's a great question. I think for me, I'm really thinking about the sustained transmission. So, for example, uh, the place in the United States that's the hot spot, of course, is Washington. They have an increasing number of cases. We've had more deaths up there today. We have uh, large numbers of emergency responders that are now in self-quarantine. And so I think what I'm concerned about is not only the increasing illness, and there will be increasing fatalities, we just have to be prepared for that, but I think what you saw in Washington is a trend that I think you're going to continue to see, and that is where individuals like emergency responders, firefighters, police officers become exposed, and then they quarantine them, which of course is appropriate. But I want you to think about that. If that happened in large numbers of uh, cities across the United States, we had a lot of people now in self-quarantine. And begin to think about the impact that means to public service, uh, security, firefighting, emergency response. So I'm concerned that what I saw in Washington, which was an appropriate action, yes, but if that happens in a lot of places throughout the U.S., I think we're going to have a real impact that people are going to feel and see in their daily lives. 
To this point, we've seen supply chain disruption, which you and I spoke about last time we talked. We've seen the global market react just this past week. What other economic impacts should we be watching or watching for? Well, I think what we're going to start seeing is this impact of as this disease begins to spread across the United States. So you're seeing the global impact in, in you know, uh, in, in a tremendous amount with the stock market and the impact in commodities and the supply chains, as you mentioned. But I think what you're going to start seeing in the United States is that, uh, you know, the thing about a disease, Tom, is that it scares people. It's a invisible threat. It's not something tangible like a wildfire or something that you can see. You can't get your arms around it. You don't really know where it is. And so that fear will begin to really change people's behavior. So even though there may not be requirements for restrictions of public gatherings or going to restaurants or going to theaters or things like that, people might really begin to change their behavior in order to protect themselves for this foe that they cannot see, protect their families. And so just think about it for a moment, how many days that you might go to a Starbucks or you might go to a local sandwich shop and, and maybe you're thinking about your own personal safety and you stop doing many of those things and then begin to think about what that means. The economic impact of small little businesses or corner stores or places like that that you go to on a regular basis and you spend, you know, five or ten bucks or whatever it is, but you're employing through that expenditure those people that work in those small locations and then begin to think about that happening, uh, not just you, but other people across cities, across states, across the country. And I think what we're going to start to see is that economic impact that's going to really be at the grassroots level. And that could impact, gosh, just think about that, it, health insurance, because people won't be able to afford it. Or maybe they can't afford to get tested or they don't have uh, ability to, to pay for medications and they can't pay their rent and so on. So I think there's a real possibility for a significant impact to America at the most local level as people begin to restrict their spending and they're going out and really changing how they live their lives for a period of time, which will really impact small businesses and local economies. Regina, for many enterprises, the term business as usual means domestic and international travel, means attending conferences, community meetings. In what ways should we start revisiting this concept of business as usual? Well, I think what we really have to think about is, okay, this is a different environment. We are facing a foe that's all around us, and we don't know if our curtain actions, if we live, continue to do as we've always done, if we're exposing people, and therefore we may have a lot more cases, and we certainly might have more sick employees, and they may not be able to go to work and so on. So I think what you're going to start seeing is that all of these activities such as meetings and getting going to conferences and so on are really going to change. There's going to be a huge push towards more people that can work from home. There's going to be a big push towards more teleconferences, more webinars, more things of which we are in a virtual environment. And if certainly if you look at the stock market, one of the benefits, one of the benefactors of this whole experience of them, those who provide virtual meetings those who do those types of things that can connect us like collaborative tools or um, meet, you know, go to meeting or WebEx or all those other products that actually are enabling, enabling us to continue our work, but we're doing it virtually. And so I think the new business as usual will be migrating much more to a virtual environment. And I think what might be interesting is that at the end of this, I think people will not immediately go back to the way it was. So for example, if you 
are able to successfully do a lot of business and you used to always get in a plane to do it, but for the for six or eight months or ten months you didn't do that, then you know why why are you going back to do that? And so I think that may mean that people revisit how they actually do business as usual post pandemic. Regina, what if our colleagues find themselves in a community that's under a state of emergency, as happened last week in San Francisco during the RSA conference? My understanding is that there were some business leaders that had to leave just because of that, because of their mm -hmm. corporate requirements. Is this common? Actually, no, that's not terribly common. I think, uh, and I'm actually from San Francisco, so I can speak a little bit as to how, why they declared that state of emergency. There's a there's an odd part of uh, many government entities that for them to actually do a different type of planning, for them to actually activate uh, emergency operations centers and fully staff those and bring them up, and for them to cross work together in departments in a different way than they do as usual, it has to be under the state of emergency. So for San Francisco, for them to be able to create that state of emergency allowed them, you know, for the EOC to activate, for cross-pollinization across departments, and the access to additional funding. But I think you raise an interesting point that if you are any place and there is this state of emergency, or all of a sudden you're not able to travel, I think you really need to think about that. Now, in the United States, even if we really have a serious clampdown, if you're on a business trip, let's say, you're still going to be able to probably find an easier, easy way to get home. And if you remember 9-11, people just rented cars and drove. So I think when you, whenever you're traveling, you need to have a, a plan in your mind, which is, what would I do if all of a sudden things really get clamped down? So, you know, for example, would I end up renting a car and driving home? Would I make sure that I have all the appropriate documentation with me, like health insurance cards and things such as that, that I could actually receive care if I needed to? If you're traveling outside the United States, I think you better have a plan of action about what happens if I get stuck here? What if I can't go home? Do I have travel medical insurance so I can be treated appropriately outside the United States? I think you need to think about where I'm going and what if I do get stuck or there is a problem, what do I need to have with me in order to be able to be safe and also to be able to get home. You touched on this a few minutes ago. You're starting to see some global enterprises now come out and actively encourage employees to work at home. Is this going to become more of a standard practice? And what strain does that put on organizations that are still very much tied to having people in an office and, and frankly, watching them work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, for you know, the migration towards work from home has been a long process, and many of my clients I've watched that over the years. And there's still a certain number of managers that say that if you're not uh, in the office and not working, and I can't see you working, then I, I can't trust that you are. And I think one of the things that we see in many of our clients is that now that what they look at is they look at what your deliverables are rather than your rear end being in a seat. Are you still producing your work that it's expected of you and the quality still sufficient? And I think because now we might be in this process of migrating towards this work from home because of the virus, I think what will happen is that maybe people will really relook at this possibility of work from home. And maybe not that it would be done every day, but maybe there would be more options for people to work from home. And so I imagine if this work from home strategy works successfully, and for the most part I think it should, that people might have a different view of it after this pandemic is over. I'm using the word pandemic even though it hasn't been defined that, but this outbreak is over. And uh, they might be more willing to accept it on a more routine basis. 
Of course, me being in the security business, I have to say that there are the issues of, are you using secure lines? <laughs> are you, oh, you know, yeah, yeah, transmitting yeah. data appropriately? There's yeah. so many issues that go in there for security organizations. Absolutely, and I think and I think you raise a really excellent point. And I think to be, especially in certain businesses and certain practices, and banking and trading and so on, that's a totally different issue. But I think yes, you're going to have people are going to have to look at that, and it'll be really interesting, Tom, that when this is all over, if people go back and do the hindsight and say, you know, did we have more breaches? Did we have more loss of data? Did we have issues where we had problems where information was lost? Uh, that would be super interesting to know. Now, if organizations haven't, it's time. They need to take out those business continuity plans. What gaps should we be looking for in these plans as we take them out and start to review and even exercise? You know, when plans are written from a business continuity perspective, they make usually three assumptions. It's a very common model where you have lack of employees, lack of facilities, lack of technology, and some also include lack of equipment. Now, when most people look at lack of employees, they don't look at it for a sustained period of time and nor do they look at it for a large number of people. And so it's often a kind of a blip. And so I think when people pull out their plans and look at the section about lack of employees, what they're going to find is that they may have not thought deeply enough about what that, that means. And so I think when they look at business continuity plans, they're going to have to actually take out their plans and look at them deeply through the lens of a disease, which is quite different than, you know, people can't come to work for three or four days because of an earthquake. So this is a sustained outage, and they need to look at it through the lens of illness in a community, school closures, people not able to come to work, protracted illnesses, and so on. And I think if they actually then really looked at it through that lens, they would be able to actually improve the business continuity plan more. I think also when they look at the BIA, you, there's a lot of, you know, that BIA, the business impact analysis, identifies time-sensitive, mission-critical business processes, and what it does is it tells them what needs to be recovered on a certain time frame. I would bet that if you looked at the BIA through the lens of a protracted illness, that what would happen is that many things that you thought were really super critical would begin to diminish, and over the course of time, that whole time frame would actually change. So again, I think that you need to take these two documents out, the BIA and the business continuity plan, and really look at it through a new lens and say, okay, now what do I really need to do to ensure that we're going to be able to do these most critical things if we have a large number of employees that are not able to come to work for a sustained period of time? Now you touched on something I wanted to ask you about, which is some of the non-work factors, community issues that need to be taken into an account. And one of the things is what happens in a school district if someone's children have to stay home. And I will tell you, that's going to start happening pretty quickly across the United States. You know, schools are still in session. We're still at the beginning of March. And we got, you know, probably three months where kids are still going to be in school. And I think it's very likely that in many areas you're going to start to see school closures. Already the departments of public health, both at the federal level and at the state and county level, have been meeting with local school districts or state school districts, and they've been looking at how they would actually go about doing closures. And the thing about a closure is that if there are kids that start getting sick and they decide to close the school, they often will not just reopen it 14 days later. If there's a lot of sustained illness still in that population, they're going to keep the schools closed for potentially a protracted period of time, maybe even a month. And so, yes, they'd have, you know, learning, uh, probably distance learning and other kinds of things that they would be doing so students don't miss as much time. However, parents now have a huge obligation about what are they going to be able to do to go to work. And so the issue about 
you know, how many people do you have that work for you that have children? What if they do have a school closure? Who's going to be able to stay home and take care of those kids? And how is that going to impact your employee population? That's a huge issue that uh, employers really need to grapple with right now. Regina, you shared with me a document that you're sharing with people on advice in, in, in the situation we're in. And at the end of it, you advise, be prepared for the long haul. What is the long haul? <laughs> Boy, if I knew that, Tom, I'd be a billionaire. Um, so let me give you an example. We work for many global companies, and many of them have lots of uh, offices in China and Asia. Many of my clients have been activated 24 by 7 for over six weeks. Now, at the beginning of every kind of activation like this, I give my, you know, my standard lecture, which is you've got to pace yourself. This could go on for a long time. And everybody always says, yeah, 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 yeah. But I will tell you what my clients look like. They've been doing this for six weeks. They're already burned out. And what I, I beg my clients to do is, first of all, you've got to understand that you need somebody to replace you. You need to check out. You need somebody. So I look to say that anybody who's in this business of business continuity, crisis management, disaster recovery, they better have at least three deep that's going to replace you. And you need to immediately, first of all, look about developing staffing charts. So that you're actually saying, okay, I'm taking the 7 to 3 shift and you're doing 3 to 11 and the next person's doing the night shift of 11 to 7 and that we're actually keeping to that. That you make sure that people do have decent times to take a break. And even things just as simple as, you know, making sure that people still can get some exercise, making sure that they have some decent nutrition. That's all really important because we're going, we have a long haul in front of us. This could go on, Tom, easily for 12 months, but it could be super intense. For the next six and if we continue to think like where this is going to be over in two or three days or a week we're going to be burned out and there's going to be nobody to come in and relieve us and so pacing yourself is really important and think about this for months not just weeks Regina, we're overwhelmed every day with news reports. You can log into CNN or whatever your source is and see updates literally by the minute what mm -hmm. are the important areas of news that we should be looking at on a daily basis to say stay apprised of what's happening that's a great question because it is really overwhelming i think obviously paying attention to what's happening globally as far as the disease is concerned so you know going to the john hopkins site for example or the kaiser family foundation site has got good mapping so first of all just tr looking at trending and actually by the way i would recommend that the family uh, the kaiser family foundation has got a really great website that talks about trends and they have a way of actually taking out all of the china cases and just looking at what's happening in the world so you can actually see this incredible escalation of cases it's actually visually very helpful so i think i would look at uh, have some good dependable places you can go for numbers and look at that from a perspective of trends then i think depending on your business you need to really be following what's happening in your industry from a supply chain perspective to up to you but also what's happening in your industry in general and then also, I think the other thing is having some good local news sources, which is increasingly hard to find, by the way, with local newspapers closing. But what is the source for information locally in the key offices that you care about? There are a lot of vendors that provide a variety of services that can deliver these pieces of information to you, but a lot of companies don't have them. So for me, I think it's important to find some really good, reliable number source. You want to have some really good information that's what's happening in your industry. And then you want to be finding things that are going on local where you're, you live, but also uh, where your offices are so you can understand what's happening in your community. 
You know, I keep wanting to say that this coronavirus crisis is just like X, but I can't find the X in memory. There really isn't anything to compare those two, is there? Yeah, you know, it's very funny that you say that because in reality, you're absolutely right. So I've done pandemic planning for over 20 years, and of course, we've had a variety of significant scares, and we did have the H1N1, but I mean, that just turned out to be really, to be honest, a really severe flu season. And the biggest pandemic before that was in uh, the 60s, which was the H3N2. Again, a lot of people got sick, but not a big deal. So in contemporary times, this is it. I mean, we, uh, we going back to the 1918 flu would probably be an example of that. I'm not saying that this is going to be like that by any stretch. So, But, you know, something hugely impactful. This will touch every aspect of your life. That's the big takeaway. This is going to touch every aspect of your life. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your insight and your candor. And let's continue the conversation. Great, Tom. Always great, great to be with you. Again, we've been talking about the coronavirus update. I've been speaking with Regina Phelps, founder of Emergency Management and Safety Solutions. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.